0: welcome to the guardian long read showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture politics and new thinking for the text version of this and all our long reads go to theguardian.com forward slash long read how deborah levy can change your life by charlotte higgins last august the author deborah levy began to sit for her portrait the starting point was a selfie Eyes penetrating, lips sensuous, head topped by a tower of chestnut hair. The artist, her friend Paul Heber Percy, used Photoshop, then a pencil and tracing paper, to reverse and multiply the image of her face until he had a drawing neatly laid out on a grid that satisfied him. Then it was time to paint. He liked to work in the mornings, in hour-long bursts, in his tiny attic studio. When Levy came for sittings, he'd bring the painting down to the dining room and the two of them would drink tea or wine and talk. Not that these were sittings in the traditional sense, but times I could observe her without feeling self-conscious, he said. Sometimes they discussed Levy's new novel, August Blue, which she was finishing. But mostly it was everyday things, friends, the news, exchanging recipes, how to unblock a sink, said Levy but Heba Percy told me nothing about these conversations was really every day. She's the sort of person who makes the mundane remarkable. Even going down to the bakery with her to get a baguette becomes a slightly magical thing, her friend the novelist Tash Orr told me. When her friends talk about her, they say things like this. She is an event. She is a personage. She is a whole world. People often remember the first time they met her. For Kate Bland, an audio producer, it was at a party at a Shoreditch warehouse. Levy was sitting on a high windowsill, Bland was leaning on it. The author's rich, slightly breathy voice was coming over Bland's shoulder. Talk unwound in a sequence of dazzling vignettes. It seemed that there was a necessary theatricality. We had to hoist ourselves out of the ordinariness of chat and have a conversation that was going to be memorable, she recalled. I was quite thrilled by it. At the time of that party, in 2008, Levy was 49. Her life had contained one immense dislocation. When she was nine, her family emigrated from South Africa to the UK after her father had spent three years as a political prisoner. After school at a London comprehensive, Levy took a theatre degree at the pioneering avant-garde Dartington College of the Arts in Devon and first forged a path as a playwright. Her first novel, Beautiful Mutants, was published in 1989, the year she turned 30. Twenty years on, at the time of the Shoreditch party, she wasn't famous and hadn't sold more than a modest number of books, though she carried herself as if she had. She was teaching, adapting Colette and Carol Shields for the radio, raising two daughters, and living with her husband, playwright David Gale, in a semi-detached house off Holloway Road in North London. She was working on a novel. Her first since 1996. Her previous books were out of print. Four years later, Levy's life was transformed. Her novel, Swimming Home, a sun drenched story about a family holiday on the French Riviera, beneath whose glittering surface runs a Freudian riptide of wartime trauma, was shortlisted for the 2012 Booker Prize. That sent sales flying. At the same time, her marriage fell apart. By the time I went to the Booker dinner in December, I knew I would be moving house and I was packing up, she told me. It was very turbulent and very painful. The following year, she published Things I Don't Want to Know, the first in a trilogy of what she calls living autobiographies, to convey their selective, fictive nature. Over the next few years, she alternated two more novels, Hot Milk and The Man Who Saw Everything, with two more volumes of living autobiography, which spoke of how, after her marriage ended, she recomposed a life for herself and her daughters in her fifties outside the old patriarchal structures. All of these books, she told me, flew out of her like a cork coming out of a bottle. Levy's novels are popular and critically acclaimed, but it is with the living autobiographies that her reputation has transcended the literary. At events, readers tell Levy that her books make them feel less lonely, or ask her what to do about a life crisis. One can't quite imagine readers doing this with, say, Rachel Cusk, who anatomizes female experience, but in a somewhat chillier style. At one of Levy's online readings during the Covid pandemic, an audience member posted in the chat, I'm 41 with two kids, and sometimes I don't feel I'm at home at all. Did it work for you, coming out of an unhappy marriage? Levy answered, It did work for me. You have to make another sort of life and gather your friends and supporters to your table. Which is pretty much the story of the second and third of her living autobiographies, The Cost of Living and Real Estate. Levy's writing has a very particular quality. It seems to infiltrate the mind. You absorb her way of seeing and start to perceive the world in levy ways. In her stories, seemingly trivial moments take on political force. An encounter with a hairdresser in The Cost of Living becomes a story about the camaraderie of women and what they reveal to each other. A scene about sharing a table on the Eurostar becomes about how men, literally and figuratively, fail to make space for younger women. In the new novel, August Blue, the narrator, having been insulted by a young man in a cafe, tells us, I think he was expecting me to respond, to reply in some way, but I didn't care about him or his problems. I've used that in my own life more than once since first reading it. The book's become almost a guide to life, said Gabby Wood, director of the Booker Foundation. She trains you to become your best self. Part of the appeal of Levy's writing is that it is shot through with unpatronizing sympathy towards younger women – both the hesitant, tough, young female characters who populate her novels, and those who appear in her living autobiographies, often negotiating sticky situations with older, entitled men. In real estate, there is a passage in which she describes her joy in cooking for her daughter's friends. I liked their appetite – yes, for the dish prepared, but for life itself. I wanted them to find strength for all they had to do in the world, and for all the world would throw at them. She is not just talking about her daughter's friends. Levy is also in the business of feeding and strengthening her readers. And they feel it. The plays and the novels Levy wrote in her 20s and 30s are collage-like gravelly, spiky and dense, marinated in the Eastern European avant-garde influences she absorbed at college. She had a talent for epigrammatic, slightly surreal sentences. I once heard a man howl just like a wolf, except he was standing in a phone box in Streatham, says a character in her first novel. But the work had not yet acquired the razored-away, spare quality that has given the later work such airiness, such ripple and flow. Nor was there the emotional force with which readers identify so strongly. It was in the late 2000s that she forged the style that transformed her reputation. She was working at the Royal College of Art at the time. Two days a week, she'd take the tube from the fumes of Holloway Road to Green, South Kensington. She was a tutor in the animation department, helping students learn to write and construct narrative. It was a potent time, she told me, when we met in September. Her colleagues at the Royal College of Art were inspiring, so were her students. At nights, while her young daughter slept, she was writing Swimming Home. I was somehow living closer to my own emotions and understood that I might be able to put them to work in my book. She had always felt that emotion was frowned upon by her avant-garde art family, but from Swimming Home onwards, I decided to totally upend that. Charging the story with feeling changed her writing, and her relationship with readers. I knew I was onto something, and it rocked me, she told me. There were times when I'd stop writing and I'd come down to cook my daughter's spaghetti in the evening. There was a sort of cool place under the steps, and I was so on fire, I would just stand there and cool down. What Levy found in her writing was a way of giving her story a shimmering, attractive surface while allowing her preoccupations with literary theory, myth and psychoanalysis to occupy its murkier depths. The novel can be taken as a kind of a holiday novel gone wrong, she said, and it has been slipped into many a suitcase as a beach or poolside read. I'm happy if the surface is red, she told me, because everything else is there to be found, and I'm working hard for my readers to find it. But I don't look down on readers who don't. I think something will come through. The something might include the Freudian desire and death wish that suffuses the novel, its peculiar linked imagery of sugar mice and rats, above all the immense treacherous undertow of history, of the Holocaust, of 20th century suffering and wars that Levy sketches into the story with almost imperceptible strokes. But Swimming Home was rejected by every major publisher it was sent to. Levy, in all her certainty that it was good, was devastated. The years following the financial crisis of 2008 were inhospitable to a midlist novelist who hadn't been in print for a while. The publishing industry was in trouble. The powerful new wave of feminism of the 2010s was a whisper rather than a roar and the kind of spare experimental books by women that would come to define recent literary trends, such as Cusk's autofictional Outline Trilogy, or Annie Arnaud's Intimate Unfurling of Memory, or Eleanor Ferrante's revelatory novels on female friendship, had yet to appear in Britain. At the time, she said, your book was either going to sell, or it wasn't going to sell, and when they said it was too literary, they meant it wasn't going to sell. Then, in summer 2009, something changed. A friend of Levy's, the late Jules Wright, who ran an arts centre in East London, read the manuscript. She was organising a show on photographer Dean Rogers, who documented the sites of car crashes that had killed cultural heroes, the spot, for example, where Mark Boland died. Swimming Home begins with a scene in which Kitty Finch, A young woman with a death wish perilously drives an older poet, with whom she believes she has a telepathic connection, along a winding mountain road. Wright decided to have the first two pages of the book printed large and installed at the beginning of the exhibition. Not long after the opening, though, she called Levy and bluntly announced she was removing them. It was a disaster, she said. People were clogging the entrance as they stopped to read the text. It was, Levy told me, the first spark that those two pages of this much-declined book were gathering a crowd around them. Eventually, the novel did find its publisher, a tiny new press called And Other Stories. The literary translator Sophie Lewis was editor there. Levy's pitch, remarkably given all the rejections, was supremely confident. Deborah told me, this is the tightest book I've ever written and it's going to be a bestseller, Lewis remembered. In autumn 2011, Levy's friend Charlotte Shepker, who runs Large Glass Gallery in London, hosted the launch party. They decided to project The Swimmer, the 1968 Burt Lancaster film, onto the wall. On the night, to Shepker's immense surprise, you couldn't stand, the place was absolutely packed, it was rammed her interesting new friend who had written witty labels for the opening show at her small gallery earlier that year was suddenly making waves it was almost said chepka as if she'd done this grand thing of claiming to be an author and then suddenly she really was an author thanks for listening to the guardian long read
1: $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV, read a book, meet up with a friend, maybe a little nap. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, but for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread. Today, to get ten percent off your first month, that's BetterHelp, H E L P. dot com slash audio long read.
0: Welcome back to the Guardian Long Read. In her living autobiographies, Levy frequently refers to her rented shed, a writing space in a friend's garden on whose roof the apples used to fall in autumn with a dull funk. These days, as she moves deeper into her 60s, the shed has been replaced by an attic in Paris, a few blocks behind the bookshop Shakespeare and Company near the Seine. When I visited her there on a limpid blue February day, she had pinned a branch of yellow mimosa to her front door. Its flowering marked, she said, the end of gloomy rat-grey January. The studio was as near to the platonic ideal of a Paris garret as you could imagine, reached by a winding stair through a courtyard and with low ceilings and wooden beams. Killim rugs were scattered on the floor and her bed was covered in a fluffy sheepskin throw. There was a stash of red wine in the fireplace. Everything about the studio radiated her delight in objects and food and pleasure. Reminding me of how, when we'd met for lunch at a London pavement cafe the previous July, despite the overwhelming heat, she'd ordered a vermouth on ice, followed by a pizza, topped off by a strong coffee and a roll-up. If you met the author and saw the studio before you read the work, you might expect something more excessive and elaborate than the stripped-down, translucent prose she produces. She poured coffee from a mocha pot and pass me a dish heaped with croissants from her local boulangerie, La Maison d'Isabelle. Pastries from the same shop turn up in the new novel. Objects from her real world often slip into her fiction. There was a biography of Isadora Duncan face out on a shelf, perhaps the same book about the dancer she has her character Elsa read in August Blue. On a table stood a bowl of pearl necklaces, and at her throat were pearls, like the pearl necklace, she has her beautiful, careless character Saul wear in her novel The Man Who Saw Everything. Things in her stories often hold the kind of powerful significance that Freud attaches to artefacts in dreams, such as the pool in Swimming Home, which, at its most basic, Levy pointed out, is a rectangular hole in the ground, and thus, also metaphorically, a grave. She loves the surrealists. The turning point of hot milk is the moment when her narrator, Sophia, discovers boldness through making bloody handprints on the kitchen wall of a man who has been tormenting his dog. A scene borrowed from a story about the artist Leonora Carrington, who, letting herself into the apartment of her prospective lover, Luis Buñuel, smeared menstrual blood over his pristine white walls. Motifs slip between books, too. In this, she has something in common with a visual artist building a subtly interconnected body of work. The title, August Blue, for example, is taken from the colour of the thread that, in Hot Milk, one character, Ingrid, uses to embroider Sophia's name into a shirt. Horses, in particular, gallop through Levy's work – from the tiny horse-shaped buttons that in real estate she kept from her late stepmother's button box, to the moment Ingrid appears in the desert landscape on horseback like a bellicose goddess in the myth-infused hot milk. The whole of August Blue hangs on striking images of horses. It begins with her character, the pianist Elsa, watching jealously as a woman she thinks might be her doppelganger buys a pair of mechanical dancing horses in an Athens flea market. Levy laughed when I asked her about the equine enthusiasms. That's a case for Dr. Freud, she said. She ponders in real estate what it is to be a woman on your high horse. Sometimes, she writes, you might find yourself incapable of controlling your high horse. At other times, people are all too eager to pull you off it. She imagines a friend riding her high horse down the North Circular to repair her smashed screen at Mr. Cellphone. When I think of Levy's horses, I also think of her adoration of her small fleet of e-bikes, now famous from her living autobiographies, which she stables by her London flat and lends to friends when they visit. She bought her first when she moved out of her marriage and into her new life. When they start up with a little equine surge of power, she told me, it's hard not to whoop every time. When Levy was a small child in South Africa and her father, Norman Levy, was imprisoned for his anti-apartheid activism, she started to speak so quietly that her voice became barely audible. What saved her from this state of virtual silence was her imagination, the dawning understanding that she could write other realities. It was a question, Levy told me, of finding avatars. The avatar she created for her nine-year-old self was a cat with wondrous powers of flight, perhaps unconsciously imagining freedom for her father as well as liberation for herself. In real estate, the flying cat is the name she gives to the ferry that brings her daughters to her for a holiday on a Greek island. The characters in her fiction are still her avatars. I'm in every one of them, she said, including the cats and including the horses. For a long time in adulthood, she resisted writing or even talking about South Africa. The difficulties of her family felt irrelevant, she told me, when set against the struggles of black South Africans. But since she had decided to base the structure of Things I Don't Want to Know on George Orwell's headings in his essay Why I Write, one of which is Historical Impulse, she found herself obliged to tackle those repressed memories. Using a child's eye view, she said, I tried to convey, without using the old language of the blood-stained regime of apartheid, what it's like to be told that you're supposed to respect adults, while there are white adults who are clearly doing very cruel things to children of colour my age. Her mother Philippa, through her husband's imprisonment, coped alone, earning a living through a succession of secretarial jobs. Levy remembers her as capable and glamorous. I loved the way she cooked with her cigarette holder and the way that she'd dance a bit to the record she'd put on when she came back from work. When Levy's father was released in 1968, he was banned from working and the family, Levy has an elder half-brother from her mother's first marriage as well as a younger brother and sister, had little option but to emigrate. Her father found work lecturing at Middlesex University, among other places. Money was tight. Her parents' marriage ended in 1974. After the blue sky and the bone white grass of the garden in Johannesburg, arriving in London felt as if someone had pulled the plug out. But despite England's greyness, she loved it. She made for the first time proper friends. I don't have that narrative of exile, she told me, of wanting to return to the place that you left. She adored the way people spoke, and she still delights in English turns of phrase hello, pet, hello, lamb, hello, duck. As for her accent, I had to lose it very quickly in the playground not to be beaten up. She often plucks her characters out of their familiar environments, partly in order to see their psychological foibles magnified on foreign shores. She herself likes very much to be in a hot country in southern Spain or a Greek island swimming in the sea. Sometimes these characters, like her, have been swept on the tides of 20th century history like the English poet Joe in Swimming Home, who is really Yusuf smuggled out of Łódź in 1943, or Lipinski in Beautiful Mutants, whose mother was the ice-skating champion of Moscow. Levy told me of an interview in the news that moved her recently. It was with a Ukrainian woman from Kherson, who had been lying in bed thinking when she was blown into her kitchen by a Russian shell. Those were her words. I was lying in bed thinking, said Levy. I do not take a place of calm, a place that is agreeable to think in, for granted. Levy's senses are finely tuned to the fragility of things. After her A-levels in the summer of 1978, she would walk past the Gate Cinema in Notting Hill, timidly noting the thrilling, eccentrically-dressed people who hung out there. One day she saw an ad in the Evening Standard for front-of-house staff. For the interview she put on a pair of big gold platform wedges. As she left the house, her mother yelled, You'll never get a job dressed like that! Those gold wedges are the ancestors of the shoes that have carried her female characters on to victory, or else to triumphant defeat. The silver gladiator sandals that Ingrid, like the goddess Athena, straps high up her calves in hot milk. The sage-green Parisian tap shoes that get her into a scrape in real estate the brothel creepers that, to her younger self, marked me out for a meaningful life, and the scuffed brown leather shoes with high snakeskin heels that we meet on page three of August Blue. She got the job at the gate. Her new colleagues were, either at drama school or off to university, and all way cooler than me. I was a nerdy writer, of poetry at the time, with a great love of Bowie. The cinema was screening Derek Jarman's film Jubilee, and he would come in and he was curious and charismatic and friendly and cultured, and he didn't feel above talking to this 18-year-old making the popcorn, tearing the tickets and scooping the ice cream. It was Jarman who told her she should apply not to university, but to Dartington, where she'd learn about improvisation and dance and avant-garde theatre and art. It was at this time, not having the kind of parents who dragged her round galleries at weekends, that she encountered contemporary art for the first time. It was an exhibition of the work of Joseph Boyce. She remembers, she told me, a grand piano muffled and covered with cloth, marked with a cross, other objects made of gold leaf, dried plants tacked to the wall, things scribbled in pencil. I remember almost not being able to breathe, and there was this voice inside my head saying, this is it, this is it. And I had no idea what it was. Was The Cost of Living opens with the narrator witnessing an encounter between a young woman and an older man in a bar in Colombia. The man, whom Levy calls the Big Silver, invites the young woman to his table. After she tells him a strange story about a perilous diving expedition, he remarks that she talks a lot and carelessly knocks her book off the table. Levy writes... It had not occurred to him that she might not consider herself to be the minor character and him the major character. It is a very Levyish story in its wry observation of dynamics between men and women, and with its implicit call to arms to women who have, as the critic Dwight Garner has put it, come to sense they're not locked into their lives and stories. Levy herself is without doubt a major character, and is intent on expanding the role. She has an immense appetite for experiencing the strange dimensions of living and the absolutely practical dimensions, she told me. We were sitting at the time outside a café near the Pontillon in Paris after a good lunch, and Lévy was smoking a roll-up. I'm not endlessly open to experience. I'm easily bored and impatient. I want to keep things moving, keep thought moving. I want to make something new of the old story. How do you make the novel as complicated as life, as interesting as life? That's what I want to do. She has many plans. She wants to adapt her two most recent novels for the screen. Swimming Home and Hot Milk are in other scriptwriters' hands. She knows exactly, she told me, how the opening scene of August Blue will go. And she has the perfect idea of how to tackle the temporal complexities of The Man Who Saw Everything, which slips, through its main character's fractured consciousness, between the Berlin of 1988 and the London of 2016. In The Cost of Living, Levy fantasises about living in California and writing scripts by her pool. When I teased her lightly about the unlikelihood of this, she said, You never know. I just might be there in my swimming costume at 80, writing films. I'd have a river now, with a little rowing boat tied to the jetty, and I'd smoke, drink coffee and write my scripts, I think probably in France. In the meantime, now that her daughters are in their 20s, she comes from her London flat to work in her Paris studio for weeks at a time. She is taking French lessons, though presently her literary enthusiasms outstrip her linguistic ability. I say, Shall we translate the poem of Apollinaire together? And my teacher says, I think today, Deborah, we will try to master Etre and Avoir. Her most natural creative affinities are in fact French, Godard, Dura, rather than British, To her evident delight, Lévy has won one of France's most important literary awards, the Prix Féminin Étranger. She has not yet won a major prize in Britain, despite multiple shortlistings, perhaps because British prizes tend to favour large, self-sufficient, discrete slabs of fiction. She begins her days early with a walk by the Seine. After work, there might be an exhibition, or dinner, which she might depart, more than one friend told me, with sudden decision, announcing that she is back off to work. She looked abashed when I mentioned this habit, worried she might appear rude to her friends. I'm immensely sociable, and then I really need to be on my own. I do like to write after a dinner party, she said. She herself loves to cook. Delicious mountains of cream and garlic, and the kitchen is like a bombsite, Charlotte Shepka told me, but it's like being in the finest restaurant. Her presence makes it an occasion. At the moment, in a sharp change of gear, she is researching a biography of the young Gertrude Stein, to be titled Mama of Dada. She is concentrating on the writer's early training under psychologist William James, brother of the novelist Henry. Levy wants to think about how this academically brilliant American, who'd be late for her medical lectures because her bustled skirts were weighted down by horsehair-stuffed hems, moved to Paris, ditched the corset, and became the pioneering modernist who dressed in monk-like robes and filled her house with Picassos. It's a characteristic way for Levy to build character. But while the books are rooted in the physical, they also make room for the uncanny and the unexplained, for the sudden intrusion into a person's consciousness of unwelcome memories or dark imaginings. It would be very sad to have all the possibilities of the novel, this hot air balloon, but to say, I only write social realism, and the hot air balloon must never leave the ground, she told me. That's not how people's minds work. People have very strange dreams and thoughts and daydreams and associations. She is, she said, very careful not to let her hot air balloon float away into the clouds of phantasmagoria. It is all in the balance and control. What also earths Levy's work is her wit. She is so amused, diverted and delighted by life, said the actor Tilda Swinton, who is a fan. Her jokes, often wryly commenting on her own failings, make for a kind of intimacy, even complicity the kind of complicity that many of us can only relate to the dry land of childhood companionship, said Swinton. Levy's women, especially the eye of the living autobiographies, fail as well as succeed. They have good days and bad. They are neither feisty and gutsy, those tiresome clichés, nor are they self-saboteurs who put themselves down to ingratiate themselves with the reader. They are both real and offer an example of how to live well. When Levy was finding a way to write her living autobiographies, she searched for a voice that was immensely powerful, immensely vulnerable, immensely eloquent and totally inarticulate, because that's all of us. In March, I went back to Paul Heber Percy's house to see her portrait finished. It renders Levy's face in triplicate, as if seen through a kaleidoscope, and her hair piled on her head, soars upwards like Medusa's snaky locks, dissolving into abstract, Rorschach-like patterns and repetitions. It gave the impression of a presence with many selves, in constant movement of thought. In the portrait, Levy has five large, wide-open, scrutinising eyes, but one of her tripled faces disappears into the world outside the frame, and the sixth eye is unseen. Thanks again for listening to The Guardian Long Read. That was How Deborah Levy Can Change Your Life by Charlotte Higgins. Read by Laura Shavin and produced by Jack Claremont and Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. For more Guardian Long Reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash longread.